All right, so uh, we talked last week uh, about the reality that you were created for what? Created to be filled, right? Okay, one person, that's good. Lindsay, if we're only reaching one, right? That's good. Uh, so we were created to be filled. We were created to be indwelled. We looked, at, uh, we looked at Adam and the structure of Adam that in the beginning God made him of the dust of the earth, right? We talked about how he, he created this structure of a man, but Adam was not yet alive until God breathed breath into his nostrils. And we looked at how that word in the Hebrew is the word for spirit. So Adam became alive when the spirit of God came into uh, his being and then he became alive, right? You with me? So we know that the intention of God was for us to be alive by the indwelling presence of His Spirit. This is how how He created us before sin. And then we looked at when Adam and Eve sinned, right? What did they do? They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're with me? Good. The knowledge of good and evil. And we we talked about the reality that God didn't say, if you eat from that tree, I'm going to kill you. But he said, if you eat from that tree, you're going to die. Why? Because God knew that life came from their connectedness to him. That he created them to be completely dependent on him. And so he filled them with his spirit that they might have relationship with him continually and therefore be continually alive. And so when they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the enemy tempted them by saying, look, you'll be like God. They took of that tree of the fruit and they believed the lie that based on the knowledge of good and evil, I can sustain life. And they disconnected themselves from the source which gave them life, which was the Spirit of God which is in them, and they tried to sustain life on their own based on the knowledge of good and evil, right? And I told you that, look, knowledge of good and evil is not bad. Uh, in and of itself, the knowledge of good and evil is not, a, is not a bad thing, but I will tell you this, and it's proven in this story, it cannot give you life. Life comes from the Creator, Life comes from him which is above, who is the author, creator, and finisher, uh, the perfecter. He is the one that gives life. And only in relationship, only in connectedness to him is life sustained. So what Adam and Eve essentially did is they, uh, and the example I gave you, I uh, heard this from a guy named Bob Hamp. He said it's like, uh, it's like taking a microwave and plugging it into itself and trying to have power, right? It, it can't happen. You need an exterior source of life, which is the Father. And so when Jesus came, he said, I came that you would have life, right? You see this? He said, I didn't come to fix your behavior. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't come so that you would start acting right. He said, I came that you would have life. Why? Because sin ultimately is a problem, but sin is a problem because it brings death. We're not just people who are sinners who need fixing of our sin. We're people who, because of sin, are, I use fixing, that's right, in a a prominent way. That's awesome. (laughs) We're people who, because of sin, are what? Dead. Because of sin, we're separated from the source of life, the Father, and so we are dead dead. And Jesus came that forgiveness might occur because in forgiveness, then the deck is clear, right, for that source of life to return. Are you with me? Because that is so good. But the sacrifice on the cross, the blood that Jesus spilled, which was the required sacrifice according to the law, Jesus spilled this blood not so that you might behave better, but so that in you there might be restoration and a new spirit, and that the Spirit of God, according to the the book of Ezekiel, might come in and indwell you and again be reestablished. 
into life and connection with the Father, right? So that's how you were created. And so what I want to look at today is uh, I really just kind of want to get into a little bit more detail uh, about that truth. I, I know that uh, you're going to be hearing a lot about the Holy Spirit this semester. I, uh, I, I'm okay with that. Uh, as we've prayed about that uh, and just gone, God, you want to speak about this at 24-7 and you want to talk about this in, uh, in our Connect class and uh, Lord, are you sure? I can. I mean, we could just change the topic, you know, because we're doing the Holy Spirit thing here, and God's been very adamant. No, this is what I want preached about. So it'll be a little different in here. It'll be a little different uh, at 24-7, but man, it is the same thing. And the Lord is, is just really intent right now about his people waking up to the reality of his spirit and who he is and who we are because he lives in us. So I'm okay that we're uh, going to say some of the same things. I hope you hear them twice. Because if I, you look at the landscape of the, of the church, you look at the landscape of believers, we need to hear it probably a few more times than that even, right? This is the source of life. We need to talk frequently about it. So um, go to Exodus chapter 12. We're just going to look at, at how this indwelling takes place. Um, and we are going to, uh, we're going to really just take apart the three types of men. And so to do that, I am going to uh, employ my... Go-to drawing. And I'm not ashamed. All right. We'll go over each of these. You guys should say this in your sleep by the time you're done with us here. All right. So the best picture, uh, the best picture of how this indwelling takes place uh, is, uh, is really found within the book of Exodus. Uh, when, we, when we track the exit of God's people... Um, from Egypt uh, into the wilderness and then into the promised land. This is really, uh, for us, uh, the clearest picture uh, of the intentionality of God in, in the indwelling uh, of his creation. What is, what is the point of our salvation? Um, and so we're going to look at today three categories of men, okay? It's not because we're Baptists and everything comes in threes uh, and it all starts with the same letter. Uh, there really is. There's, scripturally, there's, uh, there's three categories uh, of men. And so I'm going to look at each, uh, each of those three to kind of look more closely at this indwelling Christ, right? So in Exodus chapter 12, you guys, I'm not going to um, just tear apart this story. You've heard this enough in here. But basically, uh, in Exodus chapter 12, what has happened to this point uh, is Joseph brought his, uh, his family to the land of Egypt where there was great favor. And as leadership in Egypt began to change, that favor was gone, right? He began to lose that favor. And slowly, slavery is always a culture that is built. And slowly, a culture of slavery came into Egypt. And when uh, back rulers uh, came, when, uh, when there was uh, oppression from the, uh, the higher levels of government within Egypt, a culture of slavery began to exist with the, uh, the Hebrew people who at one time had tremendous favor with, God, uh, with, with, that, uh, with that government and with that system. And so there, uh, a culture of slavery set in and, and lasted uh, for a period of 400 years, right? For a period of 400 years, you have this culture of, uh, of slavery and God, uh, the scripture begins when he talks to, when God begins to speak to Moses about bringing his children out of this slavery, 
God tells Moses, I have heard the cries of my people. God has never been uh, removed from his people. He says, I've heard the cries of my people. And he tells Moses, I am sending you to go and rescue my people. Now, Moses at this point is a very unlikely candidate. And we're not going to go into that a bunch, but he's actually at this point running uh, because he's guilty of murder. Okay, And uh, so he's kind of this fugitive. He's off in the, uh, in the desert, in the wilderness, and God comes to him in a burning bush, right? Not if you know the story, vaguely, okay? Uh, so uh, he comes to him in a, in a burning bush and says, you're going to uh, redeem my people. Well, he sends Moses, and is Pharaoh receptive of his message? No, he's not at all. In fact, uh, he, 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 uh, performs, God performs all these miracles in front of Pharaoh, and, and the word says that his heart was continually what? Hardened, right? That he, that he saw and recognized uh, that Moses was legit and for real, but his heart was hardened, and he said, I will absolutely not let these people go, right? So this is the story to this point, and then God begins to pour out his wrath in a way which has not been seen ever uh, on the earth, and God begins to uh, lay out these plagues, and they are devastating plagues. And they are plagues which affect the whole nation, the whole land of Egypt, except uh, for God's people. I mean, cattle are dying, rivers are filling with blood, locusts are consuming uh, the ground, uh, and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And Pharaoh continues to say, I will not let them go. And finally, it culminates in this final plague, where God says, all right, this is going to be the most devastating. I'm going to take the firstborn male of every living thing. This is a hard thing for me to imagine. I still, I'm not going to lie to you, I still, within my spirit, I still go, God, how could you do that? That's such an unbelievable thing. God, how could you take the firstborn of every living thing, of all cattle, of all beasts of the field, right, and of, every, uh, and of every human child? The firstborn of all males, God said, I will take. The angel of death will pass over Egypt and all will die. Can you imagine the outcry in a city where the firstborn of everything passes in a moment? And God says to his people, you will only be saved from my wrath if this is true. And he begins to speak with them about the Passover. And he instructs his people to bring a lamb. We've studied this and we will more so when Passover is, uh, is upon us because we will take part in the Passover together. But uh, he says, I want you to bring a lamb into your home. A spotless, unblemished lamb, I want you to bring it into your home, and I want you to tend it, right, for, for three days. You're going to have to make sure that this lamb is your friend, and, and uh, it's got to be close to you because it's got to be perfect. And on this night, you have to slaughter this lamb, and you have to put the blood of this lamb on, your, on the doorpost, right? It was not just on the doorpost, but it would have been on the, the sides of their door. You have to cover the, the door of your home uh, with the blood of the lamb, and then take all of your family and go inside. Because when death comes, if the blood of the lamb is not present over your home, then the firstborn will die. Then the plague will affect you. Your only safety from this sweeping death, which will come across all of Egypt, your only safety is the blood of this lamb. Are you with me? And so on that night, the, the, the angel of death comes. And again, I can't even imagine the cries 
as beast and child alike perish across the entire land of Egypt, even into Pharaoh's home. As Pharaoh weeps over his lost son, he says, fine, I've had enough, get them out. They in and of themselves are a plague. Remove them from my land. And at that, at that moment, the release comes and Moses begins to lead an entire nation. We're not talking about 20 people. We're talking about a few million people get up and walk out of Egypt that night and early into the next morning. And in his rage, Pharaoh realizes that he has just let them go, but they are the cause in his mind of what has happened. And he says, nope, I'm going to kill them all. I know that I let them go, but I'm so furious that I'm, I'm holding my, uh, my dead firstborn son, kill them all. And he releases all of his army to pursue the people of God, to pursue the Hebrew nation who is now walking out of Egypt. And they come to this incredible barrier. They come to the Red Sea and it, is, it looks as if life as they know it is over because the rage of Pharaoh is coming and there's a sea in front of them and God says, go through, I'm going to part it. Moses puts his staff into the sea and the waters of the Red Sea, and this is not like uh, some small thing. The Red Sea is massive and the waters come up and rise to two walls on either side and a few million people walk through to safety on the other side, just as the armies of Pharaoh are reaching them. And as they get into the water, God releases the walls and crushes and crushes the slave masters behind them. And God's people stand on the other side in dry ground in freedom for the first time in 400 years with their enemy, with their pursuer, dead behind them. And this is what God calls his Passover. And this is the single greatest event in the history of God's people. It's one that they remember continually and one that we remember continually. But why would God tell this story and why is it important to us today? Well, this is what we have to begin to understand this story if we're going to begin to understand who we are. So Exodus chapter 12 tells us in verse 13, you guys there? I told you a long time ago, some of you were like, man, he's not even going to read it. Close your Bible. I get into telling that story. In verse 13, it says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So this, this blood goes on the doorpost, and it is this blood which saves them from death. And then we fast forward uh, many, 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 many years later, and the voice of God is silent except for this wild prophet that's out in the middle of nowhere wearing locusts, uh, not wearing locusts, <laughs> eating locusts, and wearing animal skin. He's just this weird dude, but he's saying something. He's saying, prepare away. The Lord is coming. 
prepare a way. The Lord is coming. I'm not him. I'm a forerunner. I'm here to prepare the way. And then Jesus comes on the scene and John looks at him and he says something so strange to these Hebrew people. Or sounds like strange to us, but to them it would have rung a chord deep within their being because they've heard this story of the Exodus for their entire lives. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take the sin of the world. And John the Baptist points to Jesus as the Lamb of God, that same Lamb which saved them from death. He said, this is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. And we know the story. The Bible calls, Paul later on calls Christ our Passover Lamb. Listen, if you don't know Exodus, you don't know what he's talking about. He says that Christ is our Passover lamb. What does that mean? That the blood of Christ and that sacrifice that he makes on the cross is what shields us from death. In our forgiveness of sin, we are uh, not just forgiven of sin, but we're shielded from death because did you not know that in your sin you were an enemy of God, set up to incur his wrath? You are not his friend. You are not just a casual observer. You are his enemy and you are the target and the nature of his wrath is coming to you. And the blood of Jesus is what goes on our lives that shields us from that wrath. And listen, most of us know that story well and we apply the blood in that way and we say, praise God for his forgiveness of sin. Praise God that in him I do not have death, but I have life. But let me just tell you, you've only, you've only experienced one piece of this journey. See, the Bible says that uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says, and all those, talking about the Hebrew people, it says, and all those that came through the Red Sea were baptized unto who? Moses, right? They were baptized unto, unto Moses. They, were, they, were, they came through this place of death and they were baptized unto Moses. But look at Romans chapter 6. So we have not been baptized into Moses. Something new has taken place for us. In Romans chapter 6 verse 3 it says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You guys with me? So what is he doing? What's Paul doing? He's saying, you know this story. Yeah, it's the same one. This story in the old was, was preaching and proclaiming what God was going to do in his son. And now those of us that have been baptized into Jesus, those of us who had repented and believed and said, Jesus is my savior. We have been baptized into his death that in him we might partake in newness of life. We are a new creation, right? You with me? Not if you're understanding. We're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. See, before we were what the Bible would call the natural man. This is going to be our first category of man. In the place of slavery, what were we slaves to? Not the Egyptians, but what? Sin nature. Your nature that was in you, right? Remember, it does not have the life of God. You with me? Apart from him, there is no life in you and you're a slave to sin. Does that mean you only do bad things? Yes. <laughs> Because even your goodness is filthy rags. Why? Because it comes from a place that is you. 
The only thing you're capable of in sin nature is producing what? Sin, right? This is what the Bible calls the natural man. And in our fun diagram that you all know well, this is our physical. I should just write this before because you all know this. This is our mind, will, and emotions, right? If the Spirit of God is not in us, we have no life. Can everybody see that? Quick, if you're a quick note taker there and there. All right. (laughs) So this is dead. So how does the natural man function? According to what? Right here. Think about, if you're not, listen, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus in here, this is how you function now. If you do, think back to before Christ. The only thing uh, that you were able to do in your life was pursue your own best interests. Even when you wanted to be good, even when you thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to serve George, even in that it was selfishness because ultimately at the end of the day, even your service of somebody else was about you. You are not capable in the natural man of doing anything except for serving yourself and looking out for you. You with me? That's why nothing you do is good because it's all about you and you are the created and not the creator. So God says, in, in your natural state, with just your body and your soul functioning, this is how you lived. You lived on what you thought was best and what you felt. Come on, you, have, has anybody lived that life? Just, I mean, that's what you're left to. You're left to really what's natural, and that's why he calls it the natural man. This is what the Bible calls our flesh. You're right? And this is what the blood of Jesus saves you from. So the first man is a natural man. This is the non-believer. This is somebody who the spirit is dead in them. But then when the blood of Jesus is applied to our lives, remember what did Jesus say? I came that you would have life. And life comes what? Because I start doing good things? No. Life comes because I'm reconnected with my father. And how is that possible? How is it possible that I could be reconnected with my father? Because as I just told you, you're his enemy. So did you work your way to it? Did you do enough good stuff that God said, okay, you're in? Why not? Because we just said, even your goodness is filthy rags, right? The culture of our day would say that you can attain right standing with God by what you do, by the goodness of your life. Can I tell you that it is absolutely impossible because none is good but God alone. Are you with me? So the only possibility for you and me to have life is to have connection again with the Father. And the only way that that happens, if there's a substitute on my behalf, and Jesus is that substitute, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And when his blood is applied to my life, not only am I forgiven sin, but what that does is clears the deck because something is coming to me, and that is life. The promise of God in the book of Ezekiel is I'm going to give you a new spirit. This one which is dead is going to become alive in my son. And it's not just going to become alive, but I'm going to fill it with myself. And this is what has happened at the moment that you come to Christ. Or that he comes to you. And you receive him. And you become, you become slingshotted into this new possibility. You are no longer natural And you can never be natural again because the Spirit of God is permanently indwelling your life. He's the seal 
of your salvation. You can never be natural again, but you still have an option. You're not just automatically arrived, right? And this is where we pick up where God desired for his people to go. If, think about this, if my flesh If my flesh is no longer the controlling principle of my life, which it's not anymore, right? If I've been made new and my spirit is now alive because his spirit is in me, I now have connectedness with God. Something else has to control my life. Because we just said, while this is at the helm, while we're being controlled by this nature here, what's the result? Just selfishness, right? No good thing really comes when this is the way that my life is led, right? So in Christ, a new controlling principle has to take effect, right? Or we're hosed. Because then what what in the world would would God have done if he would have uh, saved us but then left us with our flesh? Well, he didn't do that. There's a new controlling principle that is now at work in your life. And I want you to to see this. Go to Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive what? Adoption. Just adoption? Adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And listen to this, come on. So you are no longer a slave, right? Why would He use this language of slavery? Because this is exactly what occurred in Egypt. You are no longer a slave. You are no longer bound to this natural man to only be able to pursue selfishness. You are no longer a slave. That's not true about you anymore, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. What has he sent forth in your heart crying? Abba, Father. What is it? What has he given us? The Spirit. Do you read the words? Capital S, Spirit. God has sent forth the Spirit. So now we're saved from this uh, obligation to our flesh to do only what we want to do, we're saved from this natural man and a new controlling principle has entered our life. Not just any spirit, beloved. Test every single one. There's just one spirit of God. God has given us a new nature. Anybody ever wondered why the Bible says that? That the old is gone and the new has come and you're like, well, for real? Because I still look the same. Right? I'd have thought my abs would have gotten a little tighter in Christ, but they just failed to do so, right? <laughs> right? But I still have the same family. Sometimes I still have the same thoughts. I still, you know, for the most part, I mean, how, how am I to distinguish this new creation? Well, let me just tell you that there's a new option in your life. There's a new, there's a new option and a new opportunity. There's a new power at work within you, and that is the Spirit of God now lives in you. In you, beloved, in you. Not just around you anymore. Not just momentarily with you. In you. 
the Spirit of God has permanent habitation in you. And this then becomes the new controlling principle in the life of the believer. I am no longer led by my flesh, but I'm led by the Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1, right? Go to it. I want you to see this. You've got to put your hands on this promise. Second Peter chapter 1, uh, verse, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to the living hope, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You want to know why that doesn't make any sense to me? Because I'm in First Peter. I was like, where's the punchline? <laughs> Listen to this. I just seen if you were with me. Nobody said anything. Just let me keep reading. I was like in verse 6 and y'all weren't saying no. <laughs> 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. His divine power. Okay, pause. Let's really put our hands on this one. His divine power has granted to us what? All things. Okay, so frame that. His divine power has granted to us all things. But what all things? All things that pertain to life and godliness. You see the new controlling principle of your life. His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, right? So not just, he's just given us all things in and of ourselves. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness in him. One of my favorite authors, his name is Major Ian Thomas, uses this example, and I'm going to show it to you today. When we become believers and the natural man is dead, the old controlling principle of my life is gone, right? The power of sin nature is crucified and dead. Don't give it life, beloved. We spend way too much time talking to a dead thing. It's dead. But something new has to take place. So we'll look at this glove. This glove represents me, right? This glove is capable of a lot of things. This glove is capable of uh, of picking up this Bible, it could move this table, it could shake your hand, although it'd be weird because it's the left glove. Um, nobody? You shake with your right hand? All right. Help me. Um, this glove is capable of a lot of things. And we could give this glove lots and lots and lots of instruction on all of those things, right? We could, we, could, we could instruct the glove with all seriousness about moving a table, about picking up the Bible, about shaking a hand, right? And then we would say, glove, now get up and go do it. Yeah, what? It knows how. Did I not just tell you how to do it? It knows exactly how to do what I want it to do. It knows exactly what to do. But why is there nothing happening? Because there's nothing in it right? There's nothing in this glove which in and of itself can create the work that I've asked it to do until, until my hand fills the glove. And when my hand is in this glove, it is capable of picking things up, 
just like I instructed it. It's capable of, of writing. It's capable of awkwardly giving a left-handed shake. Right? Why? Because power has come into the glove. But it's not the power of the glove. It was an exterior force which moved into the glove and made it capable then of things which in and of itself the glove could not do. Beloved, this is the believer. Do you not know, Paul would say, that you are a temple of the Spirit? Do you not know that you are simply a shell, but in you exists the power of God in the Holy Spirit? That the things that you of yourselves are not capable of, He wants to do through you. This new life, this, as the Bible calls, is our second category of men, this spiritual man is the man that in the same way he was saved, he by faith recognizes the power which is in him and allows the power of God to work in and through him to accomplish all that God has called him to do. This is the spiritual man. This, as the Bible says, is Canaan. God brought his people out of Egypt because he was taking them to a place where the miraculous existed. He was taking them to a place that he told them, the toil of your own hands will not accomplish this work, but it will be my power which will establish you there. He was taking them to the land of Canaan. And this land of Canaan is the picture of the spiritual man, the man abiding in the promise of God. You with me? You with me? This is your design. The new controlling principle of your life should be this spirit for which you were created to have in you. You with me now? We talked about the fact that you were created to have him in you. Now he's in you, and now what? He is the controlling principle of your life. No longer are you a slave to do what just you want to do. Ah, but if it were only that simple. Because we've only covered two categories of men. There is yet a third. And not not to belittle us, But hopefully to sober us, many of us, many of us fall into neither of the the categories that we have already explained, but into this third. The church is sadly filled with the third category of men. Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, sorry, chapter 2, Paul calls this man carnal. He is neither spiritual nor natural. Remember, the natural man is apart from Christ, not filled with the Spirit, and the spiritual man is filled with the Spirit, abiding in the power of the Spirit for life and godliness. But this third category of man, this carnal man, is such a strange man, but he's pictured in the people of Israel in the desert. See, what an amazing, amazing story they had, right? God brought them through the Red Sea. The enemy was crushed behind them. Sin has been destroyed. Yet they wandered. The desire of God, he clearly lays it out in the Scriptures, the desire of God was to bring them out of Egypt and into Canaan with a short pause to teach him about who he is. Yet they wandered. To a point where God said to one generation, an entire generation has to die off because you are not ready to walk into my promise. Moses did not get to go in. An entire generation had to pass and they wandered for 40 years in a place of desert because they were not yet ready to be in Canaan. They wandered in disobedience. 
They wandered in grumbling at points, even saying, I wish we were back in Egypt. Can you imagine that statement? I wish we were just back in Egypt, because at least there we would know that by our own hands we could accomplish something. Do you see that? What was their desire? To go to a place that was normal, to go to a place that they have known before. The intent of God was to bring them out to a place that was supernatural, to a place that they could not explain, lest the power of God show up. But they wanted to go back to what was normal. And so in the wilderness, this is their fight. They're constantly, constantly, constantly going back to this place, to a self-focus. And because of that, they never come in to the fullness of the promise for 40 years. Not never, for 40 years. For 40 years, they wander in disobedience, relying on their flesh and not allowing the power and the presence of God to lead them in the miraculous to a place of promise. And this is where many, many, many Christians lie today. I want to just read you this. Paul says it well. He breaks down all three of our men right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to check and make sure I'm in 1 Corinthians. There's two of them. It can be tricky. In chapter 2, you guys with me? Not if you're with me? We good? Like one last push? All right. In verse 14, he says, the natural person, you recognize that? The natural person, it says, does not accept the things of God. Uh, Does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Why can the natural things not? Or why can the natural man not accept the things of the Spirit of God? He's not wired here. This dead. How can he receive in the spirit if he has no live spirit? You with me? That's why the Bible says that the, uh, that the things of God, the cross, are foolishness to those who are perishing, right? Cannot accept that which is spiritual. So he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. So what is he saying? The natural man has no clue about things which are spiritual, but the spiritual man knows, discerns, and understands all things. Why? Because he is spiritual. God is spirit. And in that relationship, we're able to know and discern the things of God. Right? You with me? So there's our two. He says in verse 16, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. This is still speaking of the spiritual man. And then he says this terrible word to the Corinthians, but but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. Can you hear the longing in Paul's heart to address them as spiritual people? If you look in the previous chapter, he begins to, to tell him his desire to teach them mature and spiritual things. And he says, and I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. And many of your versions, and, and I, I do like that a little better than this translation here, it does use the word carnal, right? But as carnal people, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of what? The flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in what? A human way. Do you guys see it? He's speaking to believers. He, said, he says, look, 
You're filled with the Spirit of God. You're made alive to Him, but you're still behaving in a human way. So how am I going to teach you things that are mature? Why? Because you're not ready to receive things that are mature because you're not standing in the Spirit. You're still operating in your flesh just like a normal human being would. This is a grave disappointment to Paul, and I'm telling you, this is true in a lot of areas of our church. We are, we are trying to address spiritual things, and some are not even doing that. But largely to a group of people in the Western church who are still operating under human terms, who still somehow believe that the work of God is going to be accomplished when you and me get together and brainstorm the best idea for missions. We still somehow believe that an entire campus is going to be saved because we all wear the same t-shirt and sing the same songs. God's saying, how am I ever going to speak to you about mature things when you are still walking in your flesh? You must begin to shift the paradigm. You must begin to move to a different place. You must begin to realize the power that is in you And stop being filled with the Spirit and operating in your flesh. And he even says the foolishness of of this argument, and I just want to go, oh my goodness. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? I listen to Piper, I listen to Chandler, they're saying the same thing. I go to passion, I go to Jesus culture, I go to one thing. This is my favorite podcast. This is my favorite podcast. I don't listen to this guy because he doesn't dress as cool as this guy. And she's a girl. So I never listen to her. (laughs) I don't know. Listen to us, beloved. And I believe that the Spirit of the Lord has come. I believe he's pushing the Western church. I believe that the reason you're seeing people begin to talk again about the Spirit is because God is pushing us. God is pushing us because I believe we're in days of revival. I will not back down from that. I believe that God wants this nation to walk with him. But it will not happen unless the emphasis is again placed on the Spirit of God. And some of you might say, how in the world? That is such blasphemy. If I place the emphasis on the Spirit, then I've removed myself from God. I've removed myself from Jesus. Listen to the words of Jesus. The Spirit will come and he will teach you all things which I said. He will remind you of me and he will only take that which is the Father's and give it to you. That when we walk with the Spirit, this is the greatest form of worship and adoration of the Father and is the greatest, uh, the greatest form of recognizing the gift that Jesus has given us on the cross. You cannot worship Jesus in a greater way yet by being obedient to the Spirit and walking in His commandments. Jesus said, I love the Father. That's why I do what He said. Do you love the Father? Do you love Jesus? Then why are we not walking with the one in whom He sent? You with me? It's time to wake up. It's time for us to recognize that we cannot be merely carnal and accomplish anything. We must be, not just, stay with me. Musicians are leaving, stay with me. We cannot be filled with the Spirit, yet rely on our flesh. This is carnal, and this is the disaster of the wilderness. So how do we do it? How do we, how do we change the story? 
It's so easy, yet so hard. <laughs> but smile, because there's an answer. Everybody? Smile. It's called faith. And despite what you maybe have heard of faith, faith is not whimsical. Faith is not an idea like fairy tales and pixie dust. Faith is not if I hope hard enough, it'll happen. Hebrews chapter 11 says that faith is solid. Faith is evidence of the things unseen. It is the real deal, but it's just not based in things on the earth, what you can see and touch and taste and feel. It's based on the things of heaven, just like salvation. Nobody went to Brookshire Brothers and bought salvation. It happened by faith. As you access that which is of the kingdom and then applied it to your life by faith, right? Right? You remember when you were saved? You remember? It happened as grace operated in faith. And Romans 10 says that faith comes by hearing. So we don't just think of what we want and then hope for it and call that faith. Faith comes by hearing. It's founded and based in the kingdom from the word of the Father, right? And this is where faith comes from. And this is why you were saved because uh, in in an act of grace, the Spirit overwhelmed you. And by faith, you said, Jesus is Lord and you were saved. So it is not any different now and today, beloved, as we try to, uh, to walk in the Spirit. It's by faith. The same faith in which you were saved was not a one-time thing. Faith is not once. Faith is continual. And the same way you said, I cannot, I cannot save myself, Jesus, save me. That was a breath of faith. You with me? You just make the same confession, and I cannot live the Christian life. Spirit, live it for me. And you do it a 100,000 times a day. You wake up with the confession on your lips. I cannot live the day which was set before me, but you can and you're in me. And by faith, I rely on that which dwells deep within me. And it's not a drive-through. It's not going to just happen. You may have to wait on God. You may have to wait until he burns every ounce of your flesh away from that moment. You don't just wake up because you said the words. Right, and then la-di-da throughout the day hoping that the Spirit of God just breaks through. Wait on Him. Refuse to do anything absent His Word. Refuse to speak absent His words on your lips. Refuse to act absent His prompting. And what will happen is that by faith you'll begin to recognize His voice. Jesus says they're not going to follow a stranger. Why? Because they know my voice. That even in the whisper, we know our bridegroom's voice. And when he calls to us, even when the circumstances are loud, even when he calls to us in a whisper, it pricks our ear because we know his voice and we walk with him, we follow him. A spiritual man is a man that walks continually by faith. A carnal man continually relies on his flesh. The day for carnal Christianity to die is today. The day for that to end in your generation is today. The day for that to be over in this room is today. And it will happen as you, by faith, rely on the power of God which is in you. And he is deep in you. Deep in you. We're going to talk about that next week. Where do I find him? Because he wants to be found, but he's also hidden. Because finding him is not a cheap thing. Right? 
It's an intimate thing, and he wants to draw you into himself. Cool? Nod if you're with me, right? So let's just apply that, right? Let's just, let's just speak that prayer to the Lord. We know that God wants us to walk as spiritual men, so let's just pray in that, in that end. God, we just confess before you that our lives are full of carnality, that our lives are full of our flesh being the, the controlling agent of our life. But we just recognize, God, that today uh, a new truth has occurred. We've seen in a new light. We have, we have looked at your truth, which says we are not bound to serve our flesh, but we are free to serve the Spirit of God. You have called us to be holy and blameless and perfect, and we recognize that the only way to walk in that truth is by relying on you to live our lives. So we just commit that to you. Holy Spirit, we just speak to you. We're going to act like you're in the room because you are. And we're just going to speak to you, Holy Spirit, in us, around us, amongst us. Have your way in us. Make yourself known to us. It is your voice that we want to follow. It is you whom we trust, and it is you who we want to see pour out in the world around us. So by faith today, we commit to walk with you. And to you, sin nature, we speak to you as the way that you are, which is dead. And by faith in Christ, I just say to you, to the enemy, that sin has no power over me. You're as dead as the Egyptians in the bottom of the sea. Your rule and reign in my life is over. And in Jesus' name, I take authority right now over all of my past and all of my sin that still seeks to have power over me. You are dead. And the Spirit of God is alive in me. I am a son. In Jesus' mighty, saving, redeeming, and filling name, everybody that agreed said, Amen. Amen.